Good morning, everyone. Hello, and uh, welcome to Palace Green. We're here this morning uh, as the final event in the Big Read event in this year's Durham Book Festival, which is built um, around the Wind and the Willows, which you will find a copy of in the exhibition uh, Books for Boys uh, downstairs, which is an exhibition of which I'm one of the curators. We have various stories that we wanted to tell through this, uh, through this exhibition, which you're very welcome to, to go and have a look at. But what we really wanted to do, above all through the exhibition, was to celebrate a love of reading. That the story we tell in Books for Boys begins in 1870, when Parliament passes a law to make it compulsory that every boy and girl should go to school to learn how to read. And while some of you, particularly those of you down the front, might have mixed feelings about being made to go to school, I hope we can all agree that being able to read is a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing. Uh, and what we want to do in the exhibition is to celebrate the great books from what's been called the golden age of children's writing, um, above all, the wind in the willows. Now, I'm a specialist in Victorian and Edwardian writing um, in particular. So when I'm writing about books that are for children, it makes me think that when we read children's books, whether we're grown-ups ourselves now, that children's books return us to the state of childhood in some way. That when, as, as adults, we read something like The Wind in the Willows, it's a reminder to us of what it's like to read as a child or to be read to um, as a child. I was reminded, thinking about this, of A Christmas Carol, which is a book that I know many of you will, will love. If you think about the very first thing that the ghost of Christmas past shows Scrooge, is that he shows Scrooge when he was a child and he shows him when he was reading a book. That's the very first thing. That for Dickens, you can't be a healthy and a proper person unless you can remember what it was like to be a child. And I think that's why, even as adults, we go back to the books that we read uh, when we were children. And it's wonderful, wonderful when, we've, when we open the exhibition, the number of people that have said to me, I'm so glad you've got Treasure Island or Peter Pan or Kidnapped in the exhibition because that's one of my favourite books when I was a child and I'm reading that book now with my own children or with my grandchildren. But above all, the book that people have said that to me and to the other people involved in the exhibition is, um, is, is, the, is The Wind in the Willows. Now, The Wind in the Willows began life as a story for Kenneth Graham's own child, uh, who was christened Alistair, but who was known uh, to him and to his wife as, as Mouse. Uh, it strikes me when I was, when I was reading the um, biographies of Kenneth Graham that it, uh, they all mention that uh, Alistair Graham, Mouse, was blind in one eye and he had very poor sight in the other. So you might think about um, uh, Mouse Graham as being like Mole, in a sense, because moles, of course, can smell very well, but they don't see very well, and, and Wind in the Willows uh, begins uh, with, uh, with, uh, with, with, with Mole. Uh, one of the curiosities of upper-middle-class Edwardian parenting... Uh, is that uh, when the Grahams went on holiday, Kenneth Graham and his wife went to one place and Alistair and his nurse went to another. Uh, that was just how you behaved if you were a posh person from that, from that period of time. And while they were apart from each other, uh, Kenneth Graham wrote letters to his son. And in those letters, he started telling him the story of Mr Toad. So it was in reading letters from his dad that uh, the story of Wind in the Willows uh, first, um, uh, first took, took life. Um, and obviously, reading is a good thing within children's books, that if you read a book, uh, obviously, it's, you know, it, uh, of, you know, for obvious reasons, if somebody likes reading, then they turn out to be a good egg. You might remember that in Wind in the Willows, Ratty is a poet. He likes to write poetry, uh, and this is a good thing. Some of you might know Kenneth, another one of Kenneth Graham's stories for children, The Reluctant Dragon. Uh, and in that story, the dragon doesn't want to fight St George. What he really wants to do is write poetry. And we think, well, that, you know, that's a good thing. 
But the trouble is, is that reading, while it is a good thing, doesn't make for very interesting stories. That, you know, how do you get a story, a good, a, you know, a, a rattling good yarn, out of somebody reading books? And, book, you know, we tend to read on our own, um, except when we're reading for, 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 for someone else. Um, uh, uh, so in order to, you know, so, so, you know, where does the story come from? You need to meet other people for a story. So in order to generate a good story, you need to put down your book and you need to get outside, and you need to do something. And that's exactly where the wind and the willows begins. So, Mark, I wonder if you could read the first passage from the book, please. The mole had been working very hard all morning, spring-cleaning his little home, first with brooms, then with dusters, then on ladders and steps and chairs, with a brush and a pail of whitewash, till he had dust in his throat and eyes and splashes of whitewash all over his black fur and an aching back and weary arms. Spring was moving in the air above and in the earth below and around him, penetrating even his dark and lowly little house with its spirit of divine discontent and longing. It was small wonder then that he suddenly flung down his brush on the floor, said, bother, and oh blow, and also hang spring cleaning, and bolted out of the house without even waiting to put on his coat. Something up above was calling him imperiously, and he made for the steep little tunnel, which answered in his case to the gaveled carriage drive owned by animals whose residences are nearer to the sun and air. So he scraped and scratched and scrabbled and scrooged, and then he scrooged again, and scrabbled and scratched and scraped, working busily with, the, with his little paws and muttering to himself, up we go, up we go, till at last, pop, his snout came out into the sunlight. And he found himself rolling in the warm grass of a great meadow. This is fine, he said to himself. This is better than whitewashing. The sunshine struck hot on his fur. Soft breezes caressed his heated brow. And after the seclusion of the cellarage he lived in, so long and the carol of the happy birds fell on his dulled hearing almost like a shout. Jumping off all his forelegs at once in the joy of living and the delight of spring without its cleaning, he pursued his way across the meadow till he reached the hedge on the further side. Thank you. Um, now, I referred earlier to said that I specialise in Vic Victorian and Edwardian writing, and when I write about this passage in my own work, I see this perhaps rather fancifully as the Edwardian shaking off the Victorian. If you think about the great houses of Victorian fiction, if you think about Bleak House or if you think about the beginning of the Henry James's The Portrait of a Lady, that the Victorians made such a cult, made such a worship of domesticity, of, you know, of, of, being, of being indoors. Think of the importance of the, of the family and the fireside in, in writers like Dickens. And I think in the Edwardian, there's something different from that. If you think about escaping outdoors in novels like um, you know, Howard's End, for instance, or if you think about... Um, the locked room mysteries of Sherlock Holmes, but when Sherlock Holmes is an Edwardian detective in The Hound of the Baskervilles, he's out there on the moor. Now, I mean, this is, you know, perhaps I say uh, rather fanciful because people in Victorian novels get to go outside sometimes. But I think in the 1900s you have this great theme of escape uh, in its writing both for adults uh, and for children. So the note of the Edwardian is, um, is hang spring cleaning, you know, let's go outdoors and, and let's have an adventure, which is, of course what happens to Mole next, that the next thing that happens in the book is that he meets uh, Ratty uh, and they go messing around in boats together. One of the things that really distinguishes The Wind and the Willows is its sense of place. 
in at least a couple of senses, I think. Firstly, it sets up the river um, and the roads later on in this book as a place where adventures can take place. If you think about it alongside Wonderland um, or Neverland in earlier books for children or, books, or in books that will come later, The Hundred Acre Wood or Narnia, these are a place where adventures can happen. And they have limits that um, you might stray into the wild wood, as Mole does uh, when, when Ratty goes, uh, goes after him. But you certainly don't go into what Ratty calls the wide world. He says in the first chapter, we don't go there, we don't talk about it. The wide world, the places where, where you and I actually live in the real world. This is a place where the magical uh, can, um, can, 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 can come true. Uh, and often, if you think so many classic stories uh, begin with the hero being separated from their home, and the story might um, end uh, with them being reunited with their home, but you have this movement away from home, whether it's um, the lost boys and Wendy escaping from their home in, 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 in Peter Pan, um, or Peter Rabbit escaping into the farmer's field next door, um, or even Harry Potter escaping from his terrible home uh, too, right at the beginning of, of, those, of those stories too, that you have the hero who is um, often a child finding their own way and doing their own thing and having an adventure. It's almost the first thing that Peter Pan says to the lost boys when they arrive in Neverland. He says, would you like to have your tea first or shall we have an adventure? And the world of the wind and the willows is like that too. It's, 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 it's a place uh, where, you can, um, you know, where, you can, where you can have an adventure. And it is magical uh, that, that you can even, for instance, meet the great god Pan uh, in, uh, in, in Wind and the Willows in this extraordinarily um, trippy chapter uh, which um, uh, you know, grown-ups here of a certain vintage will recognise that Pink Floyd named their first album after a chapter of The Wind and the Willows. That's how magical and strange amongst all the other wonderful things this, this book can be. The other thing about the sense of place in The Wind and the Willows is that it's a celebration of the English countryside and the landscape, that it's um, based partly on the Thames in, in Berkshire and also based, um, based partly on holidays that the Grahams took in Cornwall. That's where the boating part um, comes from. That The Wind and the Willows is a version of pastoral. And you have a lot of this kind of thing in the late 19th and early 20th century in prose writing. It's always there in poetry, of course, but particularly in this period, lots of people are writing about the English countryside. And I was wondering about why is this the case? Why is this in The Wind and the Willows? Well, it's because as there is more and more of this sort of thing in literature, there is less and less of this sort of thing in the real world. That in 1908, the English countryside is disappearing. It's beginning to be swallowed up by the great when of London. One of the writers that I... Uh, that I work on is, is H.G. Wells, a contemporary of, of Kenneth Graham's, and he was born in what was then the Kentish mar market town of Bromley, but he lived long enough for that to become the London borough. Oh, sorry, have I have my sound gone? <laughs> okay, is that better? Sorry, everyone. Um, so, um, uh, the, rock the, and roll now, isn't it? <laughs> <that's just> <laughs> um, <clears throat> so, um, uh, so while the wind, wind in the willows is, is celebrating the countryside, um, that countryside is, um, is, is, is disappearing. And I think even now we have a nostalgia for the English countryside and for the English country house. Think about Toad Hall, of course, uh, in this book too. Think about 
um, the popularity of books like Brideshead Revisited, or think about, and I promised myself I would only mention this once, think about Downton Abbey, which is another story about an English country house which begins at roughly the time of The Wind in the Willows in the years leading up to the First World War. So my next passage is not actually about, um, uh, about Toad Hall, but this is an extraordinary piece of writing. I mean, I haven't said this um, you know, so much too, but, but The Wind in the Willows, of course, is so popular because it's so beautifully written. I haven't included any nature writing um, in the passages that I've asked Mark to read, but some of you will remember the opening of Chapter 3, the, the chapter when Mole goes into the wild wood. is some of the most beautiful nature writing that you'll find anywhere in English in the, in the Wind in the Willows. But I wanted to talk about a much stranger, weirder passage. This is the moment when uh, Mole has survived his encounter with the wild world, wild wood. Ratty has rescued him. Um, and Badger is showing him around his extraordinary underground house. So, Mark, would you uh, read this passage for us, please? Crossing the hall, they passed down one of the principal tunnels, and the wavering light of the lantern gave glimpses on either side of rooms both large and small. Some mere cupboards, others nearly as broad and imposing as Toad's dining hall. A narrow passage at right angles led them into another corridor, and here the same thing was repeated. The mole was staggered at the size, the extent, the ramifications of it all. At the length of the dim passages, the solid vaultings of the crammed store chambers, the masonry everywhere, the pillars, the arches, the pavements. How on earth, Badger, he said at last, did you ever find time and strength to do all this? It's astonishing. It would be astonishing indeed, said the Badger simply, if I had done it. But as a matter of fact, I did none of it. Only cleaned out the passages and chambers as far as I had need of them. There's lots more of it all round about. Very long ago, on the spot where the wild wood waves now, before ever it had planted itself and grown up to what it is now, there was a city. A city of people, you know. Here where we are standing, they lived and walked and talked and slept and carried on their business. Here they stabled their horses and feasted. From here they rode out to fight or drove out to trade. They were a powerful people and rich and great builders. They built to last, for they thought their city would last forever. But what has become of them all? asked the mole. Who can tell? said the badger. People come, they stay for a while, they flourish, they build, and they go. It is their way, but we remain. There were badgers here, I've been told, long before that same city ever came to be. And now there are badgers here again. We are an enduring lot, and we may move out for a time, but we wait and are patient, and back we come, and so it will ever be. Isn't this an extraordinary passage, everyone? Um, it's, it's, it's an incredible piece of writing, and I think a part of its strangeness is that it's the wrong way around that in the real world uh, the, of, of 1908, um, badgers' houses were being encroached upon. It's not the case that people were leaving and letting the badgers move. Rather, it was the other way around. Unless you think about it really long-term, rather than the near future, the far future. I think this is an extraordinary dystopian vision, like the time machine or news from nowhere or something like that, because um, eventually, if you think about... Um, you know, future narratives where, you know, people will eventually leave and nature will eventually return hundreds and thousands of years um, in the future, the badgers will return, if you like. Now, I wanted to talk a little bit about, about time and about history because it seems to me that's another one of the really important themes in the book, about the struggle between the old and the new. That the 
many of the animal characters in this book don't live life year on year. They're not conscious that it's 1908, 1909 or, or whatever. They live their life cyclically rather than in a linear fashion. The book begins with spring, as we've heard, and it goes through Christmas to summer the following year. And that's how animals live, not in, not in lines, but in circles. Um, and I think, you know, we, we can see looking around this magnificent gallery, you, could, you, you know, we have the, you know, the history of County Durham over, over thousands of years, which might change the way that we experience um, the passing of time. But it's in the collision between cyclical notions of time, or in the collision, to put it more simply, between the old and the new, that the main part of the story of Wind in the Willows comes from. Because there is one character who does not give himself up to the passing of the seasons. There is a character who is always looking for the new thing. There is a character who is no respecter of tradition, as Badger reproves him, and says that he is not looking after his father's inheritance. There is a character who is always looking for the new thing. And that's the character that is the star part of the story of the wind in the willows, Mr. Toad. Mark. Far behind them they heard a faint warning hum, like the drone of a distant bee. Glancing back, they saw a small cloud of dust with a dark centre of energy, advancing on them at incredible speed. While from out the dust a faint poop-poop whirled like an uneasy animal in pain. Hardly regarding it, they turned to resume their conversation, when in an instant, as it seemed, the peaceful scene was changed. And with a blast of wind and a whirl of sound that made them jump for the nearest ditch, it was on them. The poop-poop rang with a brazen shout in their ears. They had a moment's glimpse of an interior of glittering plate glass and rich Morocco. And the magnificent motor car, immense, breath-snatching, passionate, with its pilot tense and hugging his wheel, possessed all earth and air for the fraction of a second, flung an enveloping cloud of dust that blinded and enwrapped them utterly, and then dwindled to a speck in the far distance, changed back into a droning bee once more. The old grey horse, dreaming as he plodded along of his quiet paddock, in a new, raw situation such as this, simply abandoned himself to his natural emotions, rearing, plunging, backing steadily in spite of all the mole's efforts at his head and all the mole's lively language directed at his better feelings, he drove the cart backwards towards the deep ditch at the side of the road. It wavered an instant, then there was a heart-rending crash, and the canary-coloured cart, their pride and their joy, lay on its side in the ditch, an irredeemable wreck. The rat danced up and down in the road, simply transported with passion. You villains, he shouted, shaking both fists. You scoundrels, you highwaymen, you, 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 you roadhogs. I'll have the law on you. I'll report you. I'll take you through all the courts. And... Toad sat straight down in the middle of the dusty road, his legs stretched out before him and stared fixedly in the direction of the disappearing motor car. He breathed short. His face wore a placid, satisfied expression. And at, in at intervals, he faintly murmured, poop, poop. <laughs> Thank you. So here we have the eruption of the modern, of the new, into this idyllic, pastoral, rural world of the wind and the willows. And in, and in fact, I checked, so new is this a thing in 1908 that the first recorded use in English of the word poop to indicate the sound of a motor car's horn is in the wind in the willows. This is a coinage by, um, by Kenneth Graham. The way I put it is this. We like mole. We'd like to be ratty. We admire badger. But it is toad 
who drives the story of The Wind in the Willows. He is, as I've said, um, the star part. And it's Toad's story that embodies the balance between the country house on the one hand and the open road, this getting out, this towards adventures and excitement um, on the other. This is the way that Toad himself puts it. There's real life for you embodied in that little cart. This is when he's keen on caravanning rather than, rather than, than motor cars. We have a, a model of Mr. Toad's caravan downstairs. The open road, the dusty highway, the heath, the common, the hedgerows, the rolling downs, camps, villages, towns, cities, here today, up and off to somewhere else tomorrow. Travel, change, interest, excitement. The whole world before you and a horizon that's always changing. Well, you know, it's exciting to get away uh, and have adventures. Uh, one of the other inset stories in The Wind in the Willows is the story of the seagoing rat. You, ri- you might remember that, uh, you know, that, that um, Mole has to persuade Rat you know, not to leave and, and run away to sea and, and, and go for a sailor because I think it could be dangerous to have too much longing for story for um, ex- 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 excitement. <coughs> that um, Toad, as I've said, is, is no respecter of the past. For that matter, he's no respecter of the new either, that every single car that he drives in the course of Wind in the Willows, he manages to crash or put into a pond. Toad is an over-enthusiastic champion of modernity, and I think particularly, sorry, excuse the researchy bit for me, that because of his, he's so keen on new, um, on, on new modes of transport, and he's very keen for the new, and also he's a little bit fat, so in my mind, I think he's a little bit like H.G. Wells, you know, my, 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 my man. Um, in a later sequel, in a couple of sequels, actually, to Wind in the Willows, um, Toad steals an aeroplane which I think has got nothing to do with the book that we've got here, but seems absolutely in character, doesn't it? That if, if there were an aeroplane around uh, in the wind in the willows for Toad to steal, he would be after it, um, you know, w- wouldn't, wouldn't it? But the narrator always keeps in mind that while it's Toad that generates the story that gives us so much to laugh at, that we know that Toad is doing wrong. That he thinks he's amazing, that he thinks he's a hero, but the narrator always tells us that he's not as heroic as he thinks he is, that he is inflated, as it were. I wonder if that's why Kenneth Graham chose to make this character a toad amongst other animals, because of toads puffing themselves up, that he's a sort of a Don Quixote character, that, uh, that he you know, a, 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 believes himself to be a hero, but actually he's a, he's a mock hero. There's a <coughs> moment in the book where um, Toad becomes um, like all the other animals because he loses his trousers. Uh, this is a terrible thing to lose your trousers. And, of course, the same thing happens to Peter Rabbit when he loses his blue jacket in the farmer's garden and then he becomes like one of the wild rabbits rather than the, the tame Beatrix Potter-style clothed rabbit. But he says, to his horror, he recollected that he had left both coat and waistcoat behind him in the cell and with them his pocketbook, money, keys, watch, matches, pencil case, all that makes life worth living. All that distinguishes the many-pocketed animal, the lord of creation, from the inferior one-pocketed or no-pocketed productions that hop or trip about permissively, unequipped for the real contest. Well, I'll be talking in a moment about what it really is that makes life worth living in The Wind and the Willows, but I think you know, we know well enough. And the tone of voice, the way that the story is told, shows us that, that Toad is mistaken to think that what makes life worth living is what you have in your pockets. So while Toad is tremendously exciting, gives us so much to laugh at, in order for the story of the wind in the willows to work, he needs to be humbled. He needs to be brought down a peg or two. And that's what happens in the next passage that we're going to hear. When Toad found himself immured in a dank and noisome dungeon, and knew that all the grim darkness of a medieval fortress lay between him and the outer world of sunshine and well-metalled high roads where he had lately been so happy, 
disporting himself as he as if he had bought up every road in England, he flung himself at full length on the floor and shed bitter tears and abandoned himself to dark despair. This is the end of everything, he said. At least it is the end of the career of Toad, which is the same thing, the popular and handsome Toad, the rich and hospitable Toad, the Toad so free and careless and debonair. How can I hope to ever be set at large again, he said who have been imprisoned so justly for stealing so handsome a motor car in such an <laughs> audacious manner and for such lurid and imaginative cheek bestowed upon such a number of fat, red-faced policemen. Here his sobs choked him. Oh, stupid animal that I was, he said. Now I must languish in this dungeon till people who were so proud to say they knew me have forgotten the very name of Toad. Oh, wise old badger. He said, Oh, clever, intelligent rat and sensible mole, what sound judgment, what a knowledge of men and matters you possess. Oh, unhappy and forsaken toad. With lamentations such as these, he passed his days and nights for several weeks, refusing his meals or intermediate light refreshments. <laughs> Though the grim and ancient jailer, knowing that toad's pockets were well lined, frequently pointed out that many comforts and indeed luxuries could be, by arrangements, sent in at a price from outside. Now, we are told, of course, at the end of the story that Toad is truly sorry. The narrator tells us that Toad has converted, but I, for one, believe that Toad will never, ever be converted, even after the events of this book, that he will always be Mr. Toad. Now, this is a moment where I get to be slightly embarrassed on behalf of people who do what I do for a living, because I've read some very sober, very earnest studies of The Wind and the Willows who point out that Kenneth Graham was a contemporary of Sigmund Freud and other early psychologists and have attempted to analyse Toad for his mania or his narcissism. And I think this just goes to show that many people like me clearly have too much time on our hands. Because I think um, you have to think of The Wind and the Willows as working not like a medical case study or anything, but as working um, like a fairy tale um, or a bedtime story or indeed a myth, I think, too, that, that, um, that, that very, very loosely, in a sense, The Wind and the Willows is modelled on Homer. The last chapter is called Ulysses' Return, that in, in both the story of the Odyssey um, and, uh, and the story of Wind in the Willows, that, that the, um, the hero returns to his ancestral home and turfs out all the freeloaders um, from it. But um, I, you know, I don't think we have to think of, you know, of, of Toad as being mad. He is Toad. He is an irrepressible character who will always be, no matter how sorry he ever claims to be. He reminds me of Shakespeare's Falstaff, for instance, or... Um, uh, Long John Silver in, uh, in Treasure Island, Stevenson was, was one of Kenneth Graham's favourite writers, that they will, they will just always be larger than life and selfish um, and, um, and funny. So if that's the case, I was wondering to myself, why do we let him get away with it? Why do we not want to see Toad punished? Why are we happy for him to be back in Toad Hall um, at, the, at, the, um, at, the, at the end of the book? And I think, above all, it's because of his friends. And this is the last thing that I want to talk about. I think this is why Wind in the Willows is so enduring and such a wonderful book and why we still carry on reading it. Because above all, it's a book about friendship. That if these other three wonderful characters, Mole and Badger and Ratty, are prepared in their hearts to forgive Toad, then we have to be as well too. Ratty says um, at one point to him, Toad, I'd take any trouble on earth for you if only you'd be a sensible animal. 
Well, if Ratty is prepared to say that, even though we know Toad will never be a sensible animal, we have to do the same. Um, I was just thinking, too, that I, I think I wrote in the programme for this event that surely everybody has a friend like Toad, don't they? You, you know that, they, you know that, you, you know that they'll, there's something you have to forgive them for, and you know they'll do it again, and you know that you'll let yourself get away with it. Does everybody have that sort of friend? And then I started thinking about my own group of friends and thinking, well, hang on, I don't have a friend like that, which leads to the terrifying possibility <laughs> that in my group of friends, Toad is me. <laughs> so this is perhaps why I'm being so easy on him here as we draw towards the close. Um, there's another wonderfully modern line um, in, in the book where Ratty says at one point, Toad, try and grasp the fact that on this occasion, we're not arguing with you, we're telling you. And you could just imagine this coming out of a 21st century mouth, couldn't you, too? So um, I think like all groups of friends, all of these, uh, you know, these particular animals represent um, uh, different, uh, different types. They all represent different aspects of human personality. That um, Arnold Bennett, in I think the best early review of it when it, when it first came out, um, described the book as being a kind of an irony of England and an irony of human nature, which I think is, is absolutely spot on. Some people have suggested that the, um, the different... Uh, the different animals represent different aspects of Kenneth Graham himself. Because on the one hand, he was this bohemian writer that got to hang out with all the coolest literary types of the 1890s, but he was also, can you believe, Secretary of the Bank of England. Uh, that he was you know, a very respectable badger type, as well as being a bohemian louche ratty as well, too. Um, that um, it does raise the question, too, and I think raises great difficulties for illustrators of um, of, of the wind and the willows is that how animal are these animals? That sometimes, for instance, remember when um, you know, Mole can't see very well, but he finds his own home by smell, and you think, well, at that moment, um, he, is a, you know, he is a mole because moles smell much better than they see. Um, some of the time, at one point, remember that the, the barge woman um, picks up Toad by one of his legs and tosses him into the river, so, that, so there he's a Toad. But at other points in the story, these are clearly fu you know, fully human um, you know, tin of sardines opening, waistcoat-wearing humans that just happen to be animals um, at the same time, too. Um, so the story is, um, above all, um, a book about friendship, and it's a book about male bonding, I think, too, because uh, these are all male animals. In a very strange phrase, um, uh, that, uh, that Kenneth Graham said that his book is clean of the clash of sex, which means it says there are to be no girl, or, or very, very few female characters in this too, which is characteristic of so many of the classic stories from the 1890s and the 1900s, uh, that the story begins as, to borrow a phrase from Jerome K. Jerome, it starts off as two animals in a boat, but it's, it's a story like The Prisoner of Zender, or The Riddle of the Sands, or Sherlock Holmes, or Dr. Jekyll and Mr. H and Mr. Hyde, or Kim, or The Jungle Book, that these are stories that are about um, uh, you know, relationships, friendships between um, you know, male characters. I read a wonderful piece which, which reads Wind in the Willows as if it were a Sherlock Holmes story with Ratty as Sherlock and Mole as Watson. Um, again, some people who do my job have got too much time on their hands, clearly. Um, and this is where I want to close, I think, with the central bond between these two male characters. This is, this is where the story begins. At one point, uh, with The Wind in the Willows, well, um, at one point it was going to be called um, The Wind in the Reeds, uh, because as you all know, if you've read the book, there are far more reeds than there are willows in the text of the book itself. But they realised that W.B. Yeats had, had pinched the title. Uh, so uh, they, um, it ended up being called The Wind in the Willows, but in the typescript of the book, which is in, uh, in Oxford, uh, the book is called The Mole and the Rat. 
And this is the last thing that I want to talk about because I think this is the most touching part of the story, the friendship between these two characters, the, the, the willingness with which right at the very beginning, Ratty is prepared to make Mole his friend, to introduce him to Badger and to inflict Toad um, upon him too. That uh, I've said that, you know, that, that, uh, that, that Toad uh, is, has to be forgiven, uh, you know, that we have to forgive him if he's admitted amongst um, all, of these, uh, you know, all, all, of, all of these characters. And while it's good to go off and to have adventures and to go and do exciting things and to, and, and to beat the weasels and the stoats with sticks at the end of the book, while it's good to have adventures to head out to the open road, nothing is nicer than coming home. So while we started with, um, with, with, with a mole saying, hang spring cleaning and dashing out to the, into, the, uh, into the open air, partway through the book, um, he rediscovers his own home too, and he wants to come back. So that while the book is about the joy of getting out and having adventures, it's also about the joy of being included, of being home amongst your friends too. And this is the last passage that I've asked Mark to read for us. Here. The weary mole also was glad to turn in without delay and soon had his head on his pillow in great joy and contentment. But ere he closed his eyes, he let them wander round his old room. Mellow in the glow of the firelight that played or rested on familiar and friendly things which had long been unconsciously a part of him, and now smilingly received him back without rancour. He was now in just the frame of mind that the tactful rat had quietly worked to bring about in him. He saw clearly how plain and simple how narrow even it all was, but clearly too, how much it all meant to him, and the special value of some such anchorage in one's existence. He did not at all want to abandon the new life and its splendid spaces, to turn his back on sun and air and all they offered him, and creep home and stay there. The upper world was, was all too strong, it called to him still, even down there, and he knew he must return to the larger stage. But it was good to think, he had this to come back to, this place which was all his own, these things which were so glad to see him again and could always be counted upon for the same simple welcome. Wonderful. Thank you, Mark. Just those wonderful words, um, those things which were so glad to see him again and could always be counted upon for the same simple welcome. In this respect, the ending of Mole's story and the ending of Toad's story are the same. They get their houses back. They get to go home. In, um, in Mole's case, of course, uh, as if things were not cosy enough, you will remember that the next thing that happens in the story is that they're visited by carol singers because it's Christmas as well, too. So it's, it's you know, um, 100%, 200% cosy um, at, this, at this part of, of the book, too. So um, this is, I think, where I, where I want to close. I talked about, as adults, um, revisiting the books that we read and loved as children. And in that sense, uh, revisiting, coming back to these wonderful books are like going back to being a child again, and they're like coming home again too. So um, that's as much as I've got to say for this part of the event. Um, thank you very much. Um, so as you've seen on the, um, on the evaluation forms, that, um, that a part of the point of the event is, is for me to sit here and, and try and explain why I think The Wind in the Willows is so wonderful and why it's been successful. Um, but we'd both, I think, also love to hear from you too. So if you'd like to share some of your own experiences of The Wind in the Willows, 
or if you'd like to ask me some questions about the book, I'll do my best to ask, ask, answer them. Um, or if you'd like to ask Mark about the experience of playing Mr. Toad on, on stage, mm-hmm. then um, he's, he's happy to do so. I should say, do we have a wandering mic for... Yes, if you could make sure that you speak into the microphone, even if you're sat right down the front, because even if we might hear you, the people at the back might not be able to. So um, would anybody like to, um, to ask a question? No, see you later. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, okay. Um, thanks, Liv. You played um, Toad in 2010, and I know it's a character which has stayed with you. So what characteristics of Toad have you kind of kept with you and wanted to continue, even when you're not playing him? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's like you said, I think I'm probably Toad in among all, all my mates, really. And um, it's, just, it's just great fun, isn't it? I think it's the fun of him, and he's kind of, it's that glint in his eye. As soon as he sees something, you know that he that he wants or that it's interesting to him, he just can't he just can't stop himself. And I'm a bit like that, you know. Just, <laughs> so sometimes I find myself playing parts and things, and I've thought, you know, or actually dancing in certain things, where I think, <laughs> what, what, what am I doing here, you know? And uh, I think that's uh, that's what I love about Toad. And you can't. I think you you covered it. You, you can't. He's sort of. He's irrepressible, isn't he? And you, mm. you can't help but love him. And even though you know he's, he gets them into trouble and he's frustrating and all those kind of things, mm. but he's just got something about him, some sort of... He's, he's kind of magnetic, really, and he, he's, mm. he's just a great character and so wonderful to play on stage. <laughs> I was quite outrageous. I used to make everyone laugh all the time. And <laughs> did, yeah. Do stupid things. But, you know, you can, it's kind of all part of it. It's part of, mm. part of tour. I think if you don't have fun with him and, and, and sort of... And go with, go with it and, and you know... It, it, you, you can't keep him alive. He's such a, uh, such a, he's so alive as a character. You know, he's great fun. Thank you. Yes. Uh, why do you think he introduces the section on the sea rat? What is it, an only explanation and very detailed bit about Constantinople, etc. It's, it's a very strange passage, isn't it? Um, I think p- part of it is, is structural, um, because that happens when, when Toad is in prison. Uh, I think off the top of my head, that chapter. So it, it's a bit like when, you're, um, when, when you've got a play and you, ne- and you need time to pass, so you go, you go to another scene. So you might have a, you know, a, you know, a, a scene just on, just on the, on the fore stage. Um, but I think partly also because um, this is a story that, that Kenneth Graham wanted to tell and wanted to find a, a place for. One of the, the, the odd things about The Wind in the Willows is that um, Kenneth Graham was, was famous uh, in the 1890s for writing stories about children for grown-ups um, that, uh, uh, oh goodness me, The Golden Age is, is, is the title of one of them. And he'd actually had writer's block for about 10 years before he wrote The Wind, the Wind in the Willows that, um, that people were wondering, you know, when is the new book from Kenneth Graham coming out? It, 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 it takes ages. So I think when Wind in the Willows comes out, it comes out as a hybrid of the story of Mr. Toad that he'd been telling to, to Alistair and also these two very strange inset stories um, where uh, Mole and Ratty bring back Otter's child from, from the great god Pan and, uh, and, and, the, and the story of the, of, the, of the sea rat, which is a, you know, a, a beautifully written um, you know, b- b- passage which, which kind, of, kind of stands on its own. I mean, I suppose, 
I do feel a bit as if I've, as if I've, I've answered your question with an elaborate version of saying I don't know, but he did. Uh, but it, it, um, you do often get, um, you know, a lot of the great stories have stories within them too, don't you? If you think about the Arabian Nights, that there are so many, you know, in, in, in set stories or even, you know, the Harry Potter books have, well, let me tell you about something that happened 30 years ago. So lots of great children's books have scenes of storytelling within them, which is, which is the, the function that the sea rat serves. Hi, Professor James, and Hi. I'm thinking you've been talking about how this book is a book for boys and how touching the male relationship is, but I see a lot of girls here today. Yes. And what do you <laughs> think this book can do for girls? Sorry, could you say the last bit of your question again, please? Thanks. Um, what do you think this book means to girls different from boys? Oh, that's a good question. The thing is, I... Um, I, I, would, I, I hope, I think, you know, for readers at least, um, you know, one reads um, gender blind. One doesn't need to be a boy, um, you know, to read a book about boys and, and, to, and to enjoy it. Um, I'm going to give a slightly researchy answer to your question, too, because I, I think that um, the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, 20s were, you know, were, were, were very male-privileged, a very male-privileged time of history. So uh, when, in 1870, when everybody was sent to learn how to read, um, people thought about boys first, and books for girls came along later. So, you know, the boys' own paper was founded, and then the girls' own paper was founded the decade after that. We had the Boy Scouts first, and then the girls' own paper a- a- after that. But, but, but also, I think the other way around is partly that um, there's the feeling that girls will read anyway, and boys need more of an encouragement to read, hence the notion of books, books for boys. And I, and I find this even now when we were talking about the exhibition downstairs that um, knowing that I, that I work on fiction, so many times um, uh, men will say to me, oh, I like to read, but I don't read novels. I read nonfiction. That, that the idea of reading stories was certainly gendered in the Edwardian period as, as something that uh, is something, you know, gendered as being a bit feminine. So you need to redress that balance through writing stories about men doing manly things. Uh, whereas you know you know you don't need to do that for girls because because girls will t- will tend to read anywhere and I think we have a little bit of an Edwardian inheritance um, even now. Uh, but I, I, I certainly don't think um, I mean you know just looking around the room I said one certainly doesn't need to be or to have been a boy in order to enjoy Wind in the Willows or Treasure Island or any of these wonderful books. I mean it, I mean it never felt to me like it was ever a, mm. having done it that it was ever a kind of match or, or a male thing. It was it, it was almost like a kind of it didn't matter because there were animals. It sort of yes. took away <laughs> that kind of, uh, oh, it's, a, it's an adventure story for boys. Because it, it sort of, it, it, it's not written that way, is it? It's you just know, it's an adventure story, yeah. yes. Although um, Alan Bennett has an interesting answer to your, um, to your question too, because in his stage version for the, for the, for the National Theatre, was, was that the text that That's you used or was did, that a yeah. different one? Um, perhaps you'll, you'll remember this better. I think the, um, uh. the, the washer... <laughs> um, <coughs> is it the, the, yeah. the, the jailer's daughter um, gives... Um, uh, gives Mole a kiss at the end of the book to say thank you, and it's the first kiss that Mole has ever had. And he says, "Oh my goodness, this is lovely! What a, what a wonderful thing a kiss is! Would you, would you mind giving my friend Ratty a kiss as well? Ratty, come over here and have a yeah, kiss." Yeah, so it's, that, it's yeah. this really sweet moment where they're you know kind of bachelors, but also sort of um, adolescents too. So that Alan Bennett imagines them just you know waking up to being grown ups with all that comes with that uh, you know after the events of, the, of, of that have finished. So when, when we did it on stage. Uh, the jailer's daughter hated me because she changes clothes with him you know, when he escapes from the prison. Yes. And she was dead skinny. So she had to wear, <laughs> she had to wear this massive dress. She looked terrible in it, so she hated me. 
sorry for time. We've got time for a couple more questions. Come on, don't be shy. <laughs> Yes. Hi. You both know the stories so well, um, and they're full of rich sub-stories as well. I wondered if you both had absolute favourite sections of Wind in the Willows that you can pick out. Wow. <laughs> well, you see, my memory's kind of... Uh, is different to yours, because my memory's mostly about doing it on stage. So I used to love... Um, I used to love the big, ba big battle at the end where they fight the weasels and, <laughs> and the car, really. I mean, the car is such a, you know, we, used to, we, we had this car and it was great and you, you could pedal it. And I, used to get, <laughs> I used to get that excited. And, um, but then, uh, then they said I couldn't pedal it because we had like a revolve on stage, so I just had to sit in it. But uh, I used to love it. And um, the, Gary, the guy, he was, he was playing the type of salesman. I, I remember we used to drive around in the car and he used to have a clipboard. And he used to write rude things on the clipboard. <laughs> so as I was going down, singing, I'd just come around and say this thing that he'd written on the clipboard, which obviously I won't repeat here. Um, but it's, it, I think I said before, it's just such a good, it's just such good fun, you know, and it's, it's kind of innocent. And it's the innocence that I love about it because, you know, you, everyone can go and see it and have a laugh. And, and I, and I, um, I mean, I would do it again, like a shot, you know. Only playing short, of course, but... You know, it's, it's such a wonderful, such a wonderful story. I, I think it. I think it's the same passage for me, actually. To that that um, third passage that you read out, where where Toad sees a motor car um, <laughs> for the first time, because it just distills um, you know, everything that I've said the novel is about. Even the um, even you know the, the bonds between the friends that you know that, that Ratty there, he's really cross on Toad's behalf. He says, you know, how dare you ruin my friend's caravan like this? I'll, I'll have redress. I'll have my own back. But Toad at that moment has already moved on to his next new thing, that moment of, you know, dreamily, poop, poop. Uh, that's that's, that's, that's the, no the, no the novel in, in embryo, I think. <laughs> uh, yes, down the, down the front. I, I read this novel as a, as a child, or had it read to me, um, and I must confess that I can't think of anything else that Kenneth, Kenneth Graham's written, so is it something that you would recommend, you know, having read this as children or as adults, is there something else of his you would recommend we should read? Uh, yes, I, I would, but, but, not, but not by Kenneth Graham, actually. <laughs> um, th th I was asked this question by a, um, uh, by a journalist uh, about, about the books downstairs and said, well, you know, which do you think is the most striking thing that you've got in the exhibition? And I said, well, we've got the manuscript of Scouting for Boys, which is an incredible thing to have, to have in Durham. Um, but Scouting for Boys isn't the first thing I would recommend everyone reads because it's, you know, it's, 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 it's a mad book. It's kind of half book for children and half crazed imperialist fantasy. Um, if you want something that, you know, that's a fun read for, for, um, you know, for any age from this period, I'd recommend Treasure Island by, by, Robert, by Robert Louis Stevenson because it is absolutely perfect. It's a book I've tried to teach with my students and I've almost given up on because I would begin a lecture by saying, ladies and gentlemen, this is the perfect book for children, and then I'd sit down again. That, that there is, that, that, that Treasure Island just works um, so perfectly that, that that's, af after Wind in the Willows, I think that's the one, I, maybe, maybe the book festival will, will let us do it for the big read next year. Um, but we'll I think back. that's, <laughs> um, uh, you know, but, but I think that's, that's similarly, um, 
something that a lot of people have said about um, uh, about this particular one is, is that you know I'm reading Wind of the Willows at the moment with with my children, and it's and it's so funny. I mean, I laugh out loud just just when I'm reading it too. And, and Treasure Island, I think, isn't funny in quite that way, um, but it's just as enjoyable when you're a grown up as when you're eight or, or ten years old or whenever you're the age to read Treasure Island. So sorry, I've done the academic thing and not quite. Um, answer the question that you've um, uh, that, that you've asked me, but I think a lot of uh, a lot of the great books from this period are are, are, are one-offs. That um, that there's nothing else in J. M. Barrie that's quite like Peter and Wendy, the novel of Peter Pan. It's 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 you know it's his, it's his, it's his one great thing, and we've we've found you know choosing uh, uh, you know books by authors downstairs. This is their one great book and the one that they're remembered for. And I think I think Kenneth Graham is that sort of category of author. Okay, well, um, I think there we need to draw to a close because I know there are more events in this, in this room to come. But I'd, um, I'd just like to, to thank you all for coming. Um, a quick reminder um, about the evaluation, um, if, that's, if that's okay. Uh, please uh, just put a, put a cross in a box. It will be, it will be very useful um, to us and we'll uh, collect the evaluations at the end if you give them to a volunteer or, or leave them on your, on your chair. Please keep going to um, Durham Book Festival uh, events. The festival runs through the week and into next weekend too. Uh, the exhibition is open until the middle of, of January. Um, have a wonderful weekend, um, everyone, and, um, and thanks for taking part in The Big Read. Thank you. Thank you.